Hello and welcome to the Liberation Podcast, an exploration of what it means when we say our liberation is bound in each other. Through interviews and personal dialogue, we will dissect just how liberation is experienced by the individual and how in result manifests in their communities. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Liberation Podcast. It's season three, baby. I am so glad to be joined today for their first interview back by my dear friend and genius poet, Lagnajita Mukhopadhyay. Um, Lagnajita and I have been friends for a little while. Also, if you remember that name, she was the first featured writer on the website, um, and she was gracious enough to also give another new work that I will also be placing with her featured page linked below in the show notes um, that is going to be kind of a reflection and maybe a little more insight into our conversation to be heard later in this episode. So little information if you ever missed way back when, when she was featured. Uh, Lagna Jita is originally from Kolkata, India, um, and is a forever home that she refers to, regardless of her more diasporic history of living in the States and her parents immigrating to the States, um, but making sure, as she details in our conversation as well, to maintain a streamline into her Indian heritage and her family that is there. Um, and so she was born in Kolkata and when asked to explain kind of what poetry means to her and how it is a kind of avenue for liberation for her, she sent an incredibly well thought out response. Poetry in the writing of it has no master. There is no power structure besides the one I create. Sure, all work is informed by other work, but as Audre Lorde says, poetry is not a luxury. It does not have to be a hierarchical elite system if thought. It has a freedom to exist on a page. Thus, voice, especially from poem, no one will ever read, is an imperative. Liberation, in its true sense, is at the same time a struggle for independence and a practice in outrage. I believe poetry does that for me. It is a place I am allowed to be angry or rather indignant, but also a place informed by craft, not Twitter fingers. Robin DJ Kelly, in one of my favorite wisdoms, calls this poetry and therefore revolt. Also, if you're just thinking to yourself, holy shit, that was really well written. Well, here's a little more professional background. Lagna Jita was the first Nashville Youth Poet Laureate in 2016 a poet ambassador for the southeast and she has been published in nashville arts magazine the tennessean chapter 16 timberbox poetry journal and quite many other incredibly impressive publications and things she's also the author of two books the first being this is our war which was released uh, through penmanship press in 2016 and her second book which is incredible uh, everything is always leaving was uh, released through mc sarkar and sons in kolkata uh, back in 2019 and also very recently her poetry album i don't know anymore here has been published and released in nashville 
So those are just uh, some tiny little accolades that uh, Lagnajita has blessed the world with. So before we get into our conversation, which um, I do cherish so much, I also kind of wanted to put forward that this conversation, first and foremost, um, which we say at the very end, is my and Lagnajita's kind of desire for people with diasporic history. And when I say diasporic history, I think especially Lagnajita would uh, would confirm that, you know, immigrant refugees, immigrants who just even come for a better better life or, or whatever to the United States, um, people who came through chattel slavery, people who came against their will, all of that falling under diasporic measurements um this conversation really is for you um and i think throughout this conversation we really related to each other a lot um in ways that i don't think i have in a long time with somebody even someone who is a person of color and not black um and it was really affirming in in kind of you know, you're not alone. And, um, a lot of our observations or a lot of our seemingly isolated experiences are experienced by many and and will continue to be so. Um, so it's our job to create space for people to grow and change and to not be afraid of that and to embrace whatever history they have and look forward with some kind of, I'm not going to say hope, but look forward to some kind of connectivity and knowledge that other people feel this as well. Um, so I want to hold space for that. Absolutely. And, um, also I think we just, I just learn a lot more about her craft and where she comes from and how she lands on specific themes of, of time and location and, uh, her diasporic identity and, it's really special. It's really great. So I, I hope you guys enjoy that. Um, I just want to get a couple of things out of the docket um, before I get straight into that. So if you missed uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the show has a Patreon now. Um, and so we have, we have, I designed it. It's myself. Um, there are multiple tiers available. Uh, starting from $3 going all the way up to 50 I believe. I think it's like 3 5 10 15 20 30 something like that. Um, each of them offering specific um, rewards and kind of, I don't like, don't like the word incentive, but offering different things for people who are able to donate to the Patreon and become a monthly donor to the show. All of that is to offset costs, obviously, to distribute and do all the things for the podcast, but also I really want to pay guests and um, it's really important to pay people for their expertise and their time and their knowledge so and their vulnerability and uh, yeah so I wanted to make that a forefront and a purpose for the Patreon. Thank you so much to the people that already have signed up. It's really incredible. Um, I have officially been able to pay off Squarespace on a monthly basis because of y'all, which is fucking great. So keep it going and uh, help me, you know, not really make money, but at least 
ethically be able to pay people to be on this show because I would feel bad and you should also feel an obligation to pay people for their vulnerability and their time and their expertise because we do that anywhere else. That's what you get paid for for your job is you get paid for your expertise and the things that you do in your work. So other people deserve that too. And then another form that you can donate if you can't financially do it every single month. I also have a one-time payment available uh, through Venmo or PayPal. And so if you just want to toss me 20 bucks or, or five bucks or a dollar or whatever, that's great. And I would very much appreciate it. Um, and those will be linked below. And then uh, I think the last thing is that just a little forewarning because I moved. Uh, I'm still dealing with kind of eliminating echoiness and setting up a new recording space. So, of course, in the first trial run, everything sounds fine while you're recording. And then you go back and you realize that your second mic wasn't recording. And so you have to rely on your voice memos app that you had up during the recording session. So the audio might be a little um, uh, loud. <laughs> Because I had to turn up the gain a lot on Langajita's um, portion of the conversation. So just be careful if you're listening with headphones. You might get a little shock here and there uh, of, of loudness. But I promise you, you can still hear every single wise and gentle and great word that she has to say. And I will also be there too. Okay. Without further ado, um, everything, every information that I have about Lagnagita is linked below. Uh, everything is also on the Liberation Podcast website, so everything is showed below. Please enjoy my conversation with Lagnagita Mukhopadhyay. Lagnagita, how are you doing today? You know... I'm still here. Yeah. <laughs> what a absolutely accurate statement for at least this last week, this new cycle of the last week. Top of the food chain. Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So you're a poet, you're a songwriter, you are an essayist, you do a bunch of shit. Um, so tell me, because you have a really specific story and specific, but also somewhat universal to a lot of people who grow up with immigrant parents um, and live this kind of duality um, that so many families and people growing up first gen. Technically, you're not first generation American. I guess you are and you're not, which is a really interesting thing. But um, we can also talk about that. But so tell me how you got into poetry and songwriting because I believe songwriting came first for you um so tell me about that kind of creative journey and how that ties into your just personal life and your growing up kind of in this dual world right yeah um well I, I think you know to get into that it's just my my parents are both artists in their own ways um my dad's a writer. Mm -hmm. uh, they, my parents both did theater. My mom is a classically trained singer and dancer. So it's kind of like the arts was always very important to them. Um, and kind of passing that down was important, regardless of like, you know, how well I did. More so like, like a way of life or a practice. And so I think in terms of storytelling, you know, I think we all kind of come from 
a place we we have that kind of uh, lack of inhibition and imagination. That, you know, of course, if it's nurtured, turns into you know you thinking about craft and what words mean. But um, I think that came from a very natural place, and I didn't really know it at the time. But like looking back. Um, I think I've always, I was always a writer. I think my mom would teach me how to like do like Indian classical like scales. Would give me like voice lessons or whatever um, at in India back when I was in India. Um, but then when I got here, I think like I remember um, someone giving me like an MP3 of like the Beatles like greatest hits or something. Love that. And Love a classic MP3. Classic. <laughs> and I was like, what is an MP3? Like, what is this? Mm-hmm. You know, wh- why have I never been mm-hmm. exposed to this? And I I think it's it was also really interesting. Like, people that grew up here, they had, like, all this stuff passed down from their parents. And, like, for me, I had all this, like, Bengali stuff, some Hindi stuff. The only English music um, that really was passed down was, was like, my dad really liked Bob Dylan, um, Pete Seeger, Belafonte, Harry Belafonte, and the Beatles, which all of them were kind of really the only artists that wanted to come to India, basically. And then, of course, very much informed by, like, Black Black Liberation Movement, um, because that was part of the revolution. They were, they, my parents both come from a, they did student politics for the Indian Communist Party, and so like very much informed at least their view of the West. It was not very, I don't know, I guess my mom had a bit of American dreamization um, as like really anywhere. Their view of the West was a little bit less, mm. like there were more like Russia, you know what I mean? Right, and less, less like, rose-colored. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And so I think kind of having that Tradition also is raised in a very, like, you know, they'd be like, this is how the West is, or this mm. is how, like, America is, and, you know, there's racism, and there's these class divides, and, like, and I think they didn't really fully understand that while they were there, obviously, but when they got here, it was very much like, what is this, like? What was their, if they were, if they were studying that, what was their inclination to still come? Yeah, um, so my mom, I think, and this was kind of unfortunate because, like, the research capital Mm. is America, Mm -hmm. Um, and I think my mom had slightly less radical tendencies than my dad, Um, but she, you know, was doing her postdoc here, and so it was supposed to be temporary, it was supposed to be, like, she would do her postdoc here for, like, two, three years, and then go back Mm -hmm. and work there, Mm -hmm. you know, so... I was still in India, my mm-hmm. dad was still there, she mm-hmm. was here alone um, for a little bit, and I guess I think this is this is another thing that really informed my life in the sense of like, you know, I was always like closer to my dad, but, mm. um, but then I, I guess I started to feel like some kind of, something was missing, mm-hmm. and so my parents were like, we'll go visit, and... Um, they didn't tell me this then, they told me this after, but they were planning on, like, while we went to visit, me and my dad came to visit, and I was supposed to, I was basically, like, the plan was I was going to stay with my mom mm-hmm. while she finished and come back mm-hmm. later, so it was going to be, like, split, 
But of course I would never let that happen. I would never live without my dad. And so basically that's why like I came here, they put me in kindergarten um, mm. because like school is super rigorous in India. So mm-hmm. like, they didn't want me to like mm-hmm. lose out on anything. And I loved it. We just take naps. We just brush our teeth. Like by this point I already knew how to write cursive. Oh, wow. So you're just dunking on these kindergartners, and you're just like, and what? Yeah, I was like, I'm sleepy, too. Yeah. Okay? Like, what do you mean? So I was basically just like, I want to stay, you know? Mm -hmm. But, like, why would you listen to a Mm six-year-old? You know? Mm -hmm. I'm still salty about this. Um, And I also feel a lot of guilt, I guess, about it. Mm. Um, but in a sense, came here, you know, it was always for years after that, there was always like a sense of uncertainty being, Mm. you know, like my parents never wanted to stay. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is very different to a lot of diaspora communities. Right. Where like they see the dream and they like, practice the dream and then they've got the big house and the nice car and they're like and then the emptiness is there yes right or the disillusionment right right and they don't have words for it they don't Mm -hmm. understand what it is um but my parents always knew what it was interesting and so like from a very young age um even if i of course i had like you know i think I was also just kind of convincing myself that a lot of things that were happening to me were not racism or discrimination mm-hmm. or, or inequality or mm-hmm. whatever. You know, it was just kind of like, no, it's just like because of this or like they don't want to invite me because you're you never let me do anything. And, you know, there was a lot of, sense uh-huh. of um, tension there. But I think throughout it, like even throughout this tension, um, I never once was ashamed of being Indian mm. um, or being Bengali, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't always want to show it. But I wasn't wanting, not wanting to show it because I was like, no, this is inferior. Right. So, like, that created, I would say, interesting. Mm-hmm. That, like, created a sense of solitude. I've, been lonely Mm. for a long time you Mm -hmm. know and um my parents always are like yeah if you think like this you're gonna be alone right like Mm. that's a natural thing we're alone here right um and so in that sense I turned to like art and I grasped onto it and you know that that actually it falls in line with this um I don't know if you know who he is but his name is Steve Steven Satterfield he just recently did the food doc uh, by the book of the same name, High on the Hog. But he also has, yes, oh baby, I am so ready for season two. But he also is um, one of the founders, and I think he also curates the. I actually don't know exactly one thousand percent what he does, but I know he's one of the co-founders of this media called whetstone yeah which is whetstone is so cool whetstone please let's do a collaboration but also he was on dave chang's podcast and they were they were talking about code switching and how in the doc there was no code switching necessary because he had through the like from 
lowest heavy air quotes lowest paid job mm-hmm. to the to himself full black cast full black um like showrunners cameramen all of that and so that created a space where code switching isn't necessary however he defended code switching in a really in a way that i've never heard of it in saying that why why would i want to share something a language that's sacred to me mm-hmm. um with people who i know are either going to gonna take it either consciously or subconsciously or also not fully understand me when I use it Mm -hmm. um and that's just that what you were saying of not necessarily being seeing your Bengali heritage or or yourself even being from India or being brown at all is something to hide but it's also sacred to you as well right yeah I think yeah that pretty much you know encapsulates that kind of it's not even necessarily a tension because a part of you, like Stephen said, like a part of you does not want to give this away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it seems like it's a conscious choice to be like, like I can give you a really like silly or small example. Like if I go home and I'm like eating at the table with my family, it's like instantly eating with my hands. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. There's no thought here, mm-hmm. you know, but if I'm, you know, with my white friends, I'm also instantly just eating with a spoon on the floor. Mm, right? mm-hmm. It's not a sense of like, oh no, I can't eat with my hand right. in front of you. Right. You know? It's just, I don't when I you're don't. here. Yeah. And like, also I feel like if, when I invite like my friends home to my parents, like I'm like, you're gonna eat like this. Mm, and I think that's the really important distinction. It's that again, not hiding it, not being ashamed of it. It's when are you using it at specific times? And yeah, like that's the important distinction is like, no, you're not going to be, I'm not going to say comfortable in the sense of like white people be uncomfortable, but like you are not going to like take away anything from this, Mm -hmm. this space because this is what we do. Right. And And it's, I think another big thing is, which is why maybe um, our community and communities of color struggle is just the, the explanation, right? Like it's, yeah. you know, just always having to explain every single thing right. you do. It's like... And you have to have some anthropological right. long-ass explanation. Exactly. And for yeah. like, this is non... <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. yeah right, or right. Like, I don't know, it's made me not it's made me question exactly like who I want to share with and what I want to share um and I think like visibility is one thing like I think it's important for white communities to be like this is you know what this looks like but I don't think it's necessary for them to understand everything Mm-hmm. And I don't think they will mm-hmm. understand everything. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, but also, like, what does that give you if one person is like, "Oh, I get it," right. or like, or even like, even like the um, like, there's always going to be a level where they don't mm-hmm. exactly. is the thing. And I think that's exactly why I connect to poetry so much. Mm. Um, maybe I. S- kind of struggled a little bit more when I wrote songs because I was like, mm. well, there is a certain 
kind of place that this needs to go. Right. Um, if I was recording something, I was like, we need to have some tablas in there. We need to have some kind of like Indian dream synth coming out of that into poetry. Yeah, we struggle a lot with being like, we need to hear this other thing from you. Because I grew up in a white world, but much of my language is is is, is brown. Much of right. my culture is. And of course I still battle with this like every day because there's really vast parts of my identity that mm. would be taboo in Indian culture. And so those, those things I'm still, I guess where it will be ongoing like tension. Um, not because people, like of course people prescribe it to you, but also it's like a self um, battle, not necessarily like supporting the things that you're doing mm -hmm. but you're doing it because you're like but right i don't know anything else right you know and so how do you feel that writing and writing poetry specifically because you deal with so much of like the idea the idea of just identity in general um how do you feel like that helps you process these kind of multitudes that you're carrying all the time or kind of juggling? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think like when I first started out, I was like, if you read my first book, um, very much like a kind of exploration of what poetry is. But I think like the first poem I ever wrote that I was like, I can't share this, mm. you know, um, it was, it was the, the skin you asked for. Yeah. And, you know, obviously about sexual fetishization. Yeah. And I was like, I can't, like... Yeah. Why did you do this? Like, right. Why did I write this right now? Like, what am I supposed to do with this information? Mm -hmm. You know? Like, um... But then I shared it. Mm. And I was like... Well... And I think, like, the... I guess... Overloading, like overwhelming, like like the deluge of mm -hmm. like, now I have to write vulnerable and mm. personal. I realized that that you know poems like that are not going to be everyone's cup of tea. Mm -hmm. You know, my my own mother is probably going to be like, what? Yeah. What are you doing? Um, but I think like it became less about delivering something. Mm. Um, which is why it's helped me process these things because I know it's kind of like cliche to be like, I write for myself, but like, I do write for myself. Yeah. Um, and I'm not planning on being a professional poet, you know, mm -hmm. like I'm not planning on, um, curating a certain image. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just more so interested and, um, enamored, I guess I would say with, the processing of emotions, not in like stream of consciousness, yeah, not in you know confessional writing, yeah, but just in like craft, um, yes, you know, curated maybe two years down the line after you experience an emotion, yes, um, a very rational dissection of, of thought, yes, and that I feel like that it comes across in your writing, especially in your second book, of how. Um, I don't want to say analytical because I feel like that's cold, but just how, how many layers of processing you did through it. And, but it also, and this like kind of ties into what I wanted to ask you anyways, is, um, 
it also brings you to a really immediate moment or really um, immediate scene that you can picture really well, especially when you're talking about um, like family or talking about being in your grandparents' apartment or like whatever. And it really, even though I've never been uh, to Kolkata or have been in your grandparents' apartment, I can imagine some kind of, and not in like an appropriative way, but just imagine some kind of still and quiet space that you hear every small thing that happens or whatever. And it allows you a space to think or to reflect on your surroundings, um, or really any scene that you're picturing. So I am curious of how, well, one, if, cause you talk about spirituality as well, a lot, or really like, um, spiritual traditions and being a part of traditional practices and like, uh, I don't congregation is a weird way to say it, but just like, uh, uh, what's the word? Just meetings, like, <laughs> like spiritual meetings. I don't know. Um, that was a weird, I don't know why my mind spaced, but, uh, talking about spiritual gathering and you speak about death a lot, rebirth a lot, um, flesh, skin, all of that. Um, so how do you feel that you kind of landed on these themes that you kind of revolve around often? Yeah. Um, I think your struggle to find that word was very apt because I like to call them functions. Ah. Um, Because I'm not religious in any way. My parents were not religious. Um, They kind of told me, they were like, well, you can go to temple with us and decide for yourself. And Mm. I was very young and I was like, I'm good. You're right. You know, like, yeah. Seven years old. I'm like, yeah. "Yeah." For sure. (laughs) I I know everything. but so that that kind of created this space for me to examine, um, like almost like Judaism, like Hinduism mm. as a culture. Mm-hmm. And I never, you know, practiced the things, but I was went to the things. You know, yeah. puja is a big cultural function. Mm-hmm. It's not just, the, you know, the rituals that you're doing right. or the the praying that you're doing to your deities. It's it's a gathering space. Right. It is almost a big party. Mm. You know? It's always fun every year. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's just staying up late and drinking cha, you know? Mm-hmm. Like it's so I, I always saw it as less of a um I guess practice and more of a way of life. Mm. And I think Hinduism in its root has never been a religion. It's been a way of life. You mm. know? Our our texts are um, we don't have any, we don't have a holy book. Right. We have, um, like, our great Indian epics, mm-hmm. just stories and long poems. Right. Greeks. Right. Romans. Um, and then we have the Vedas, which are just, like, kind of a manual mm-hmm. for life, almost. Like, take your shoes off mm-hmm. when you come in the house, because it's you know like yeah that's it's it had nothing to do with take your shoes off because god wants you to right right? um or you're like on a holy space or whatever yeah but then became if you take your shoes off you're respecting the space Mm. that you're coming into whether that be the holy temple Mm. or like a house for us is a holy place Mm. right like um, so these these types of like very practical things, I grew up with, and I didn't realize I grew, you know, like yeah. Um, it just was kind of like, like the way we 
rinse our mouth after a meal. Like, mm-hmm. It's just people can be like, that's a religious ritual that you're doing. Right. Okay. But for me and for my family, and um, I suspect majority of Indian people, um, they don't connect these daily practices mm. to God, right? And so I think it was a very accessible place for me. Sure. Um, and it used to be one of the most tolerant, you know, one of the yeah. most tolerant religions right. in the world. And right. It's been co-opted uh. um, by the, the Hindu uh, nationalist agenda. Um, but I think that provided me a space of kind of seeing the world and understanding the world in very not ritualistic terms, but right. practical terms. Right. And in that way, it provided a space for, like, questioning. Mm. Um, I love that. Right. It was almost like a science. Yeah. You know? I love that. And so, because of that, you know, there's, like, we have little things where, like, if you, like, you know, accidentally touch someone with your foot, you're supposed to, like, uh, you know, do a little, like, prayer, little Mm -hmm. prayer thing. Um, I never did that. Right. You know, action. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, sorry, like, um, let me respect you that way. But I felt uncomfortable doing it. Ah, right? yeah. And so I would say sorry. Yeah. Like, maybe my method wasn't like doing. Right, that the specific gesture. Yeah. yeah. But I'd be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Interesting. And, and so I think that mixed with, I think, the commonality of like, at least I believe, like, all Eastern religions have that sense of, um, you know, the cyclical nature, right. the kind of um, tenets of maybe, like, compromise and yeah. sacrifice. Right. And um, just viewing yourself as a greater whole. Right, you know? right. And so those things really informed how, obviously, I was raised, but it also informed how I thought about the same things maybe my, like, friends were thinking about, mm. you know, mm-hmm. where they'd be like, but I want, I want to do this. Yeah. And I'd be like, okay, we'll do, we'll do that. Right. <laughs> right. We're like, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you know, some might be like, oh, you're being deferential. And to, mm. to a degree, when I was young, I was definitely being deferential. Sure. There's like a, that apologetic yes. energy. Yeah, for sure. Or like obedient right stuff like that right but the older I get the more I'm just like like I genuinely most you know instances of my life Mm. I truly am flexible another big thing in the east is like being comfortable with pain Mm. yeah oh yeah that let's let's talk about that for a second because I uh, have been reading a lot just for the podcast for the future. Um, I have been reading a lot about um, ecological death activists, mm-hmm. and a lot of obviously a lot of that comes from uh, a lot of natural burial is indigenous, and a lot of Eastern uh, practices is a lot of natural burial in that. And a lot of people were talking about the West's inability to process pain, mm-hmm. inability, and and the fear of death and not only just the fear, but the 
building an entire society and pop culture society framed around forgetting death exists and putting youth and um, youthful energy at the forefront of everything, leaving behind elderly people, sickly people, whatever. And then you get to the, where the U S is now. But, um, but yeah, so I, I'm, so were you, when you started developing your writing, um, themes like death, Mm -hmm. rebirth, all of that came, I would assume would come more natural to you then. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I think for me, um, I think some people look at me and they're like, like if, they always want my advice, right? Like, mm. and, but they don't want well, it's because you're brown, so. Yes. <laughs> and you're brown and femme presenting, so they're like, please tell me what to do with my life. Yeah, 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 yeah. They like, get upset when you tell them the truth. Yeah, and they're like, uh, well, I'm going to do the other thing anyways. And you're like, great. Taking up, like, you know, like weeks, yeah. years uh-huh. of my time. Uh-huh. Um, but anyways, like, I think what I always tell them is not that I'm like, you know, I've mastered the art mm. of, you know, understanding and, and pain. Like, I never say, I'm, I always tell them it's like, I just experience what maybe this, this huge conflict, yeah. this like big life shattering, right. you know, changing event. I experienced it when I was six years old. Right. Coming right. to this country. And I didn't have anybody, right. my parents to, you know, be there. Navigate. Yeah. yeah. And so naturally, like, if you have that kind of, I guess that's, I call that a ripping. Mm, yeah. Um, there's no way as a six-year-old you're going to just give up on life. Right. You know? Right. Um, but there is a sense of understanding that, like, my dad always used to be like, nothing is the end of the world. Mm. Um. Which also means everything is. I was about to say, I was about to like finish it for you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which means everything's the end of the world. Everything is everything all the time. Yeah. And so I think, you know, having that and being like, well, literally every single thing in my life right now, I have no control over. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I'm not in any place of control. Right. Right. Here, you know? Right. And so I think having that and not, I guess, resigning to it. I don't even think that is a, that practice is a sense of like I'm giving something up or mm. losing something mm-hmm. doing so I think for me it's always been more like well no like I know how to how to cope with these yeah. things because I've always had you know a space at home alone where I've mm. been reading I've been writing I've been mm-hmm. doing art I've been singing whatever it is you know yeah they're I always had a place mm. and place is very important to me in writing yeah. um, or placelessness and the, the concept of like what home is. And I just don't think if you're trying to like force this idea of a, a home, mm. you know, on anything mm. that's like your philosophy or, you know, the, what you feel about your life Mm. or of course physical space is just futile um right because you're gonna be shifting and you're gonna be changing yeah like i never understand how humans are like i i won't change i'm never gonna change right 
every molecule on this your body rechanges itself and find like li- literally like your skin sheds and rebuilds all the time oh all the time so you are changing i thought about that too um because i have so many plants all the time right and they're i'm surrounded by it i woke up the other day and i was like i am constantly surrounded by things that move and I am also something that moves all the time, moving, changing. I am consistently always something that has a space and does not have space. And that also like really, I'm you saying all that makes sense reading your, your work because it, I don't feel like when, when I, when I, so when I read your second book, I never read it sitting down, which is really bizarre. And I like, Usually I'm not a pacer unless I'm like on the phone or when I read uh, Between the World and Me. (laughs) And I was like, I need to start moving. Um, But I would always take your book with me wherever if I was going to go on a walk or something. And I would be reading it while I was moving because I felt like it fit the pace. It fit the pace of what you were writing and also just the placelessness Mm -hmm. of what was happening. And just constantly living between space and no space. Exactly. And I think, of course, that is the greatest immigrant, you know, like that's the number one thing that an immigrant does. Right. I think if you are not acknowledging, like people come here and then they're like, this is my life. Mm. And this is how I'm going to raise my kids. Mm. This is how I'm going to live. This is how I feel now. And I'm like, you of all people literally moved from one side of the world to the other side yeah your entire family right and now you come here and then you're you're wanting to create a solid you know right a, a place of being which there's know? there's empathy there because sure. totally obviously like that. you obviously understand like the with so much uprootedness something has to be stable something to some degree to be, yeah. And uh, you're going to search for that constantly. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that I don't search. Right. Um, I think we all search. Yeah. But I think a lot of people don't search for the right things, mm. you know? And I think definitely if you're not an immigrant, like if you've just been here, a lot of, especially America, mm. successionalism and all of that, like they they don't want to go outside of their selves. They mm-hmm. don't want to go outside of their you know, little square block. Yeah. Um, most of them haven't even left their city, much less the country. Right. Um, I think that creates just this, like... Tightness. Tightness and this, like, lack of flexibility to understand your own place, mm. you know? And I think, for me, of course, I'm always, like, on to the next, on to the next. Yeah. And some may view that as, like, restlessness right um, some may view that as like well if you're gonna look everywhere you're never gonna find it you know right and i i have to tell them it's not like i'm, I'm it's not like i'm saying this new thing i'm doing will will solve my problem mm. you can't go somewhere else and right know, like I say it in a I hate quoting myself, but it's like, sometimes it's like, it's your own words, right? It's like, yeah. I would have said that in conversation. Yeah. I put it in a poem. Yeah. It's like, each place I go looks like the next place I run to. Right. Um, and so it's, of course, you're going to find that. But I think that process and that journey 
needs to be reframed. It's, mm. it's always been this on the road, like mm-hmm. Odyssey kind of mentality of like, you go and you return, mm-hmm. you go and you return. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think there needs to be a return. Interesting. You know, I yeah. think we're a chain and yeah. we're, we're a circle. Just Do you ever have that feeling? And I, I tried to ask somebody this the other day and it was not, they were not understanding. But anytime I go somewhere, it like honestly doesn't even matter if I'm just literally going to the store and coming back home or if I'm going on a trip and I come back home. The second I am back looking at something familiar, it feels like none of that happened. Yeah. And I like, I, I've never understood what that is. And that might just be a product of diasporic living, even yeah. though like I'm not an immigrant. Actually, you know, if you could really argue that I am being adopted anyways, I still, like, whatever. That's for my therapist and I, not for this podcast. Um, But I, but yeah, I think it might be specific to diasporic people where anytime you return to some, somewhere, unless it is truly like home, home, Mm -hmm. if I were to go back to Ethiopia, maybe I'd be like, tight, this is great. Or, or whatever, but anytime I, it just feels like nothing happened. Right. And I think that also stems from, uh, just this experiential thing of like when it's like survival, right? You know, Mm. it's just like when you come back, you need to survive. And Mm. I I view my, I see my parents and that's exactly what they do. Mm. Um, they're not like, they're not losing their shit when they're here. Like, but they're not like right here right you know right and i think that is a lot of the times if you are constantly like every time i've been back from living abroad or something i've just been initially just so depressed right yeah you're just like Uh uh-huh like to do this again i have to do this again and also you i feel like when you when you create space for yourself even um even if it is just so much as going outside of the town you're living in, when you create space for yourself and you come back to something that isn't, it's a neutral zone. It's not necessarily terrible or, or that great. It feels so isolating It does. and incredibly claustrophobic mm-hmm. in the sense that you've, ex- you've experienced openness. Sure. And I would, I would feel like in the times that I've also written things that I felt expanded expanded the way that I wrote, but also expanded the way that I I feel flow or any kind of experiential writing. When I return back to like, either if I return to a new project or I return to just like my day, I'm just like, what the fuck is going on? Like, I just like, I feel crazy and I feel like everything is really small and, and compact. And I felt like that, like my whole life here. Mm, That's like, that's, I can't really always explain this. Right. Like, a sense of like I've always been a traveler and you know both even just going home back to India or whatever it is I cannot relate Mm. all the time yeah when I return oh my god yeah my friend even my closest friends yeah our lives are diametrically opposite yeah you know yeah um and I think when I like I've been in Nashville for the past um six months at a stretch which yeah has been like a long time mm-hmm. to be in one place without like a purpose mm-hmm. um and so it's so easy and this is the flip side of it i think 
survival, mm. you know, is you forget, right? And survival is that, like, you cannot every day of your life think of, like, the family you just lost in India. Like, mm. you can't. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mm-hmm. impossible mm-hmm. to live that way. And so, you know, I f- yet again feel guilty about this all the time. You forget. Like, you, yeah. you just put that in another time in another place another Mm. part of your life and you live this life Mm. and wherever that takes you that takes you but it feels isolating yeah it feels like you know this is temporary yeah so I've always felt Mm. like everything I've done is temporary yeah which is actually in a sense helped me because change right is temporary right and so I've had an advantage in that field being like, well, it's not like nothing's right or it's not like everything's wrong. It's like something's not right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. God, that is so accurate to just every day, <laughs> every day, just like, hmm, the vibes are off. Yeah. Like, so, hmm. Uh, the wind is changing and the vibes are off. Uh, but yeah, it, it, every, every day, even going into the same workplace I go into every day, something's wrong, something's off. And I, I don't know what it is half the time, but something's wrong. It could just be in my mind that something's wrong. And there is sometimes, but like, but in general, it's just this nameless thing that is off. Um, so let me ask you, how does, um, the, like you, you kind of, well, you talk about rebirthing Mm -hmm. and kind of not, I don't want to say reinvention, Mm -hmm. but just this kind of recycling and rebirthing, um, that happens within, um, well, within your work, but also within people. Um, so tell me about that. Yeah, I think, yet again, super incompatible with just all motions of the universe to be like, well, this is who I am. Yeah. Right. Take it or leave it. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I think we have a responsibility to each other, and we have a responsibility to ourselves Mm. to, like, leave room for each other Mm. um, within our definitions of ourselves. And I think um, maybe, like, white people struggle with this so much because there is no there is no place for them to go Mm. um and for me there is a there is a um ancestral chain Mm. right like yeah an ancestral kind of connection and just reverence for land um whether that's obviously in one physical place yeah or just kind of the concept of Mm. um you know what place means or what home means yeah as a direct kind of um servitude maybe to the earth instead of um a city or borders right um and being also like part of that you know, partition and, you know, I have refugee in my blood in a sense yeah. because it's been prescribed right. to me. Right. But I don't, you know, I feel that tie to that 
whole land. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, not to one culture, not to one religion, not to, you know, one particular people. Um, But, you know, just just a place Mm. to go. And I think if, like, of course, sometimes it feels unhealthy to not be there, right? Like, that makes sense. You know, that's why I, I, my parents have always taken me back. Like, Mm. we go back every two years. Um, but I think it's unhealthier to not know. Yeah. And yeah. Unhealthier to not ever go. Yeah. Um, and so for me, like I view rebirth in that very, you know, distinct way because I am constantly reinventing, not myself, but just my relation Mm. to where I'm at and what I'm doing. Mm hmm. Yeah. And so I think, yeah. I don't know, I like, I don't want to say I'm, like, balanced. Yeah. Person. Like, of course, we've all got, like, things we need to work on. But right. I just feel stable in my mind because of this intense yeah. work I've done from the age six. Right. Till now. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm thinking of, not that it's important that I relate my own story to yours, but I think it's... No, I think it is um not to not to co-op your story or anything but i myself being adopted i'm i am just now at 24 realizing like you're adopted as fuck as in like as in like especially like the history of ethiopian adoptions is bleak as shit uh transnational adoption in the u.s in general is the history of it bleak um and really like the other day when you're when you're talking about having a servitude to land i also feel that in general i think 99.9 percent brown people feel that regardless if they've been introduced to it or not when that when that gate is unlocked it's there um i don't think one brown person's gonna be like actually fuck the earth um <laughs> but i they're a very uh, talented photographer that I follow, um, Mel Cole. He went to Ethiopia recently and documented a lot of what he was doing. And he just literally hired a guide and a translator. And he went to specific villages and just hung out with them, took photos. That's it. Like, that's all he was there for. Um, and not in a weird National Geographic stage the photo away. It was just a photo. Um, and he, I just saw that and I, something in me was like, oh, like that is, I, I want to feel part of that and I know that I need to. And I, and I had been to South Africa and Zambia and there's this whole thing about, um, the spirit of Africa, quote unquote, that regardless if you are from the specific country that you're visiting, like there is a very specific tie to the land that anyone who is born there or really anyone who has any amount of genetics that draw you to there, um, you are welcomed by the land. And I did not understand this dude literally told me on the plane. I was like, word, it's the 17 hour plane ride. Like, great. But he, and he and now he just talked about it for a couple hours and I was, he was just like, you'll, you'll feel when you get there. And it was day one, bitch, like day one. And I was just like, I didn't know how to process it. I didn't know what the fuck was going on, but I was, I wasn't afraid of that. Yeah. And I welcomed it as well. Mm-hmm. But 
that was a very long tangent to say that I understand that um, servitude and also desire to be a steward of a land that is existent and you have draw, draw to, um, but also being open to reflecting on yourself yeah. and yeah. opening space to be different. I think welcome is a good word yeah. to use in this situation um, because, I don't know, we have a, like in India, we have this idea that like guest is God. Mm. Like whoever comes into your, your mm. worshiping, whoever comes into your space. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is, this is a space, you're, this is a holy space mm. you're offering and mm. they're, you know, yeah. basically like devotees, right? you know? Right. And so like that, what you were describing is I think very opposed to whiteness in the sense of, um, to those who don't have a specific tie. Right. Yeah. And, and also just, of course, you know, about policy and this yeah. whiteness and like oh yeah and all that like I never felt I never felt nor do I feel ever right here. right and I think in almost the same exact way of you talking about um uh oh my god or way early in the beginning of of saying even if you're white even though your best friends who are white right they will still not understand a specific, like to a specific degree that you know that they can't. Yeah. I feel like is the exact same way that land exists here. The exact same way. And I think like, it's easy for us to be like, I mean, we look different. So yeah, we're not welcome here, but it's, I think, you know, this is not our land. Anyways. Right. Right. So like the whites of this land, I'm sorry. Like, yeah. You're, not welcome here because you were not respecting right the space right and so then you feel right like you need to assert some dominion right um and so i and i relate to that like i understand mm-hmm. that idea of mm-hmm. like oh i must create a place of belonging mm-hmm. you know we're actually all the same in that way like, right we want to create right. something that serves us but right we think we it's the opposite. But it when it comes from a, a an economic standpoint, right. that's it's not going to be ethical. <laughs> like it's not yeah. like that's that's not happening. Creating systems to, to assert. Yeah. I, but I think that I think the word assert is more apropos for that because it it, it implies violence, right. some amount of violence, yeah. and it implies severe, some kind of, of right, yeah. and it implies that systems are created to do so as opposed to someone in a maybe in a in a diasporic framework asserting themselves would be it's just not it it, that is that is finding belonging that is desire for belonging right we in any capacity anywhere we go we're in a sense I, i wouldn't say forced to but we're inclined to and to an extent, have to serve the land. Right. But it's, you know, you cannot, as a white person, believe that the land or its people are meant to serve you. Like, right. I think right. that's, you know, the difference. It's right. Like we could have easily been like, oh, this actually 
fucking sucks. Like, right. I would rather, like, you serve me too. Right, <laughs> right. You know? Right. But I think that's, that is what creates this incompatibility. With, mm. Like, you, they're not okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, and that's the whole thing where it's, it's fucking Toni Morrison that it's just like, white people need to understand that that racism and this structural oppression hurts them too. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That like you will never understand full belonging if you do not also serve the fucking land that you're on, serve the people that you took things from. Like serve each other in being able to have open discussion about the shit that your family did wrong. Just like literally just talk to each other, man. Like, yeah. Just with your friends, be able to tell each other the fucking truth. Like, yeah. Don't, it goes yeah. down to the smallest right. kind of, right. you know, example right. of, of power. You know? Right. And it's, you're not top diplomats. Mm. And know? I understand the fear that's there. Sure. Like, completely empathize yeah. with, like, oh, I, I can't, right? Like, right. I think we probably feel that yeah. more than most people yeah like i can't see but like you're just like america is not like world police like can't Mm -hmm. cannot that's not sustainable like Mm -hmm. you cannot be top diplomat Mm -hmm. like anywhere like what Mm -hmm. diplomacy is not the answer here right 100 percent. yeah (laughs) (laughs) no you're okay (laughs) this is a space to be mad um, I am actually, this is kind of it. <laughs> the questions are done. Um, and, uh, thank you for being on and sharing glimpses of your story and your processes of work and how they help you process. Um, yeah. Do you have anything to plug or say or whatever? I hate, I hate that, but, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to be writing for a long time. It's, you can read it if you want. Um, it's online and stuff. But I think, like, it's important um, for us to have the space. I thank mm. you for the space, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I, I also want to reiterate that I think, like, people that look like us mm. you know, need to, you know, understand that it's a natural thing them mm. to be feeling this way or like mm-hmm. going through this mm-hmm. it's not like incompatible with the space that you're in mm-hmm. and I, think- I just want to thank Lagna Jita again um, especially for that last part that we hit on that I really feel now that I am recording this after our conversation um, that this was a space for connection between people that have experienced diasporic history um, and I, if I were to argue, um, consistently feel that they are not lost, but they are isolated in some ways in the way that they experience things in their mind, um, and how kind of bodily, um, and physiologically they feel that they're separated from something. Um, and so that manifests in a lot of different ways sometimes it's always moving and in a, in a kind of searching for something um sometimes that is isolation 
sometimes that is you know whatever so sometimes it is making excuses for things that you've experienced um and then later realizing that's not what that was and that you were harmed and it was a violent act and so to anybody who's listening that may have a history of of diasporic um life and in whose family might come here from a different place or or you were adopted and came from here or came here and whoever if you are feeling displaced in some way you are not alone um and there are communities around you and people around you who need you as well and who need your mind and your closeness and your self um and so this was for you and i really appreciate you listening to this if you want to read Lagnajita's work or become more connected to what she does, you can follow her on Instagram, that is linked below, and also read her poetry on the Liberation Podcast website and her website where you can see kind of more of her essays and recorded stuff. So please go and support Lagnajita as best you can. And also, last thing, if you are so moved and financially viable um, to donate to the podcast, please become a patron um, so that I can pay my guests and pay different distribution costs and, and things like that. And I will catch you guys next time.